So we are wrapping up a series of messages called Rethink. It's it's uh, the the appropriate topic for the season of Lent is is rethinking because Lent is about solemn repentance. And one of the things we discovered as we began this conversation is that repentance doesn't mean to put on a long face and be sorry. It simply means to rethink, to to make a U-turn, to stop digging that hole, to to change your mind to rethink things. And so we've been rethinking things. We began by rethinking God because God is invisible and we don't always know what God's up to or what God is like. But what we learned is that the way we can think properly about God is by looking at Jesus, that Jesus accurately reveals everything we might ever need to know about God. We can learn what we need to know about God by looking at Jesus. So we rethink God, but we also rethink ourselves because some of us, we think of ourselves as, as failures or losers. Um, we think of ourselves as, as uh, the cause of a problem in somebody else's life. Uh, we think of ourselves as a victim of somebody else's troubles. Um, but what we learned is that when we die, when we go to heaven, the way God will introduce us to people there is as his son or his daughter, that we are children of God. So we rethink who we are. And then we also started to rethink our past because, because for a lot of us, the past is something we don't want to think about at all. We bury it as deep as we can. We, we put it under the carpet and we try not to think about it at all. But what we learned is that we can rethink the past. We can change it in our mind. We can become uh, people who realize that Jesus has redeemed our past. But this is the message that I've looked forward to the most, today's message, because however however good our past may be as we look at it and learn from it, it's still our past. There's nothing we can do about it except maybe learn learn from it. But our future is still ahead of us. So what I want to do today is I want to look at our past, uh, look at our future. And for the obvious reason, right? We've all got questions about our future. Every one of us has things we want to know about our future. Um, for some of us, it's a relationship thing. You know, is he the one? Should I call her back? Should I get married? Should I get divorced? We have questions about our relationships. We want to know, should, should I do this thing in, in my relationship? Maybe we've got questions about our job. We say, you know, should I stick with this job? You know, the economy is, you know, kind of turning south. I'm not sure if I'm going to be um, uh, safe if I if I go looking for another job right now. Maybe we say I need to stick in my current job. Or maybe we say, actually, I look forward. I don't see much future here. I need to get another job while the getting is good. Uh, we have questions about our job or, or for some of us, our, our schooling. You know, we're thinking, you know, I've got a week off because it's spring break, but my problems are still going to be there next week when I go back. So we've got questions about our education. Maybe for some of us, the questions we've got is our finances. We're just saying, is there any way to make all the numbers work out? Um, is there anything we can do to sort out our finances? Maybe for some of us, we're thinking, you know, what's going to happen to the value of my house? You know, I, I read the newspapers and I'm nervous about what's going to happen. What can I do about my house? I don't want to be underwater. We've got questions about the future. And that leads us I think particularly those of us who are coming to the question from a perspective of faith, we have an extra question, which is, where is God in this? Uh, you know, not every, not every religion believes in a God that knows the future, but Christians believe that Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus taught us about a God who knows the future. The future is not a surprise to God. 
And so we wonder, where is God in this? We wonder, why do I have to wrestle with all these questions by myself? How come God won't just tell me the answer? If he knows the, if he knows what's in the future, why doesn't he just tell me? Why doesn't he tell me what I can do to avoid these problems that I see in the future ahead of me? And that can even lead, uh, besides just resentment, we can be resentful about God. Why is he keeping this to himself? Why doesn't he share it with me? We can also become anxious because maybe the way we were taught is that there's a, a, a straight and narrow path and we need to stick to it. And if we deviate one inch to the right or the left, then we will fall to our doom. And so we get anxious. Why doesn't God tell me what I should do? If he's going to hold me to account, how come he doesn't tell me what I need to do? So if these are our pictures of God, then maybe what we need to do is we need to rethink our future. So what I'd like to do is look at this passage in the, the scriptures in the book of Numbers. And so um, I'd like to uh, to do that. So if you can um, if you can uh, locate those passages in your scripture while you're while you're coming there, um, the I'll kind of orient us what's been going on in the big picture. Uh, the book of Numbers, the part we're reading now, takes place a couple of weeks after the Exodus. Uh, the Exodus, maybe you saw the movie, uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Then they back and forth, there's plagues, and, and eventually Pharaoh is convinced to let the people go. So the people escape their slavery in, in Egypt, and then God leads them on dry ground through the Red Sea. And then as soon as they come up on the other side, the, the, the waters of the Red Sea close over Pharaoh's armies, and so they are safe. And now they're in the wilderness. They've got about a two-week journey to the Promised Land. But along the way, the people start to complain. So you can go back and look in chapter 11 and so forth. The people begin to complain. They say, I liked it better back in when I was a slave in Egypt. And they're unhappy with the situation. They don't, they're, they don't, they are in the middle of the wilderness there. And so God tells Moses and Aaron, He says, appoint some leaders to go spy out the land. The word is traditionally translated spy out. It could mean explore. But basically, they're going there to find out what the opposition looks like. So we'll, we'll stick with spy. So these 12 leaders from the people, they go and they spy out the land for 40 days, and they bring back the report. And that's where we pick things up in chapter 13. So they come back, and it says, At the end of 40 days, this is verse 25, At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation, and they brought the fruit of the land. So the fruit of the land, um, if you go back and look at it, they found a, 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 a cluster of grapes so big it had to be attached to a pole and carried by two people. So great big cluster of grapes. They say, very impressive. Uh, look at the fruit of the land. And they say, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. So they see the upside. There's all kinds of upside to the promised land. It's a land, just like advertised, of flowing with milk and honey. But, there's always a but, but the people who live in the land are strong and the towns are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And then they give a list of all these different people. The, the Amalekites, the Hivites, uh, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. So they say there are plenty of people in that land. So they're saying, I see the upside, I see the, I see the positives, but I also see the negatives. I see the risk, I see the dangers that are inherent 
in this proposition of going up into the promised land. But Caleb, Caleb, one of the leaders, he brings a minority report. The majority says, let's be cautious here. But Caleb says, no, let's don't. Caleb says, let's go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And then the majority responds. The majority says, no, we are not. We are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we. It says, they brought to the Israelites an unfavorable report of the land. This word unfavorable means slanderous. It's not just, it's not just unfavorable. They're saying, no, it is not a good land. And then they, they bring out the, the, the boogeyman. They say, there we saw the Nephilim. The Nephilim, this is the only place in the scriptures we see the Nephilim except way back in the book of Genesis. It talks about the Nephilim as these mythical people from back in the day who were very scary. And so they say, we saw the Nephilim there too. So they're basically saying, we can't go there. It's just too dangerous. We don't dare go into that land. And then uh, the people cry all night. And then in verse 5 of chapter uh, uh, 14, it says, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. And now Joshua adds his voice to Caleb's. We don't know which side he was on in chapter 13, but in f- chapter 14, Joshua adds his voice and he says, he says, uh, he and Caleb tear their clothes. They say, oh, I'm, I'm so sad. They have very emotive thing they do. They tear their clothes and they say, the land we went to as spies is an exceedingly good land. This word is, it's a very, very good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are no more than bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. They said, we see the possibilities here. Yes, there's challenges, but we see the possibilities. But the people don't. The people look at the challenges, they look at the the dangers, the risks implicit in this proposition, and they say, "Mm, no. And they don't go into the land. And so for the next 40 years, what should have been a two-week journey turns into a 40-year journey because God says, all right, none of you are going into the land. Not one of you will go into the land except for Caleb and Joshua because they saw the possibility and they knew that I would get them there. The rest of you, I'm going to do with you what a lot of us wish God would do with us. God says, I'm going to lead you by the hand for the next 40 years until you die. And then your children will go into the land. But as for you, I'm just going to lead you through the wilderness. You're going to go where I say. You're going to do what I say. I'm going to tell you when to, when to set up camp. And I'm going to tell you when to break camp. And you're just going to follow me around for the next 40 days. Because God will do that. But it's not God's intention. God doesn't want to lead us by the hand. God doesn't want to walk us along a path. God wants to take us into a big, spacious land, a land flowing with possibilities, and to give us an opportunity to do something wonderful there. And so when we reject that opportunity, God says, I can lead you, but but this is not what I want. This is not my desire for you, that you be led along a thin, narrow path. 
this idea of the straight and narrow, we heard it in our song today. It's, it's this phrase that comes from, from Matthew's gospel. Jesus says, straight, he says, he says, enter by the narrow gate for straight, S-T-R-A-I-T, straight like the Straits of Magellan or the Straits of Hormuz, a narrow place. Straight is the gate. Jesus is saying that there is a pasture on the other side of the gate, but there's a narrow path that gets you through that gate. In in John's gospel, we heard from John uh, chapter 10 a couple of weeks ago, Jesus says the same metaphor. He says he is the gate for the sheep. But the idea is not that we are then constrained forever to walk on this narrow little path. The idea is that Jesus makes it possible for us to enter into this broad land, this land of possibility. In Mark's gospel, Mark tells us the story of a of a blind man outside the town of Jericho. And when he hears that Jesus is going through town, he begins to call out. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus has him brought up to him. And he says, what do you want? Jesus doesn't say, I've got a plan for your life. Jesus doesn't say, here's my plan. Stick to the straight and narrow. Do exactly what I tell you. Jesus says, what do you want? I mean, we all know what the answer is. Jesus knew what the answer was. But Jesus says, what do you want? Man says, I want to see. And Jesus says, your faith has made it, made you well. Go. God wants us not to walk along some narrow little tightrope, afraid to fall off one side or the other. God wants to bring us into a big land teeming with possibility. Donald Miller, the writer, he says, he says, the will of God is not this narrow path. The will of God is a great big canvas that God wants us to paint a beautiful picture on. Erwin McManus puts it a different way. Erwin McManus says that human beings, uniquely among all animals, have, have an ability to envision a future that doesn't exist. You know, uh, certain animals maybe can, can use tools. Maybe they can do a little bit of, I, I have some sense of the next few minutes, but humans can envision things 30 and 40 and 50 years out in the future. And he says, humans are created by God to create the future the way God made silkworms to make silk. That humans are designed to create a future that doesn't exist. So what do we do with this? How how can we learn from this? Uh, see, a lot of us, we look at the world and we say, I don't like that path. I don't like that future because there's too much challenge in it. There's too much opposition. There's too many risks down that path. And so we pick a different one. We settle for a future that has no opposition, that has no challenges. So one of the things we should learn from here is that we can do greater things than we imagine because God is with us. So if you look out on your future, if you look at your future and it's all smooth sailing, maybe you're settling. Maybe you need to up your game. Maybe you need a future with a little more opportunity to fail. Another lesson is I think most of us need people like Joshua and Caleb around us because I think a lot of us are like those first ten. A lot of us, we see the, we see the risks 
and we say, that's a bad idea. And I think we need to have people, we need to be in community with people who will encourage us and say, yes, yes, you can. We can with God on our side. Because God doesn't want us to follow the straight and narrow. God wants us to enter through the narrow gate, but he wants to lead us to a broad and spacious place. He wants to lead us to a land flowing with milk and honey, a land teeming with possibility, a land where we create the future that doesn't exist. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you are a God who who opens up new vistas, new possibilities for us. Lord, we pray that that you would help us because sometimes we are timid. Sometimes we see the Anakim and and then we imagine they're worse than Anakim, they're Nephilim. And so, Lord, we pray you'd put people in our lives, people like Caleb and, and Joshua, who can who can help us to remember that that even in the face of challenges, when when the doctor tells us that that things don't look good, when our common sense says there's not much point in investing in this. When we look at the relationship and say, you know what, there's really no future here. That you would put people in our lives and that you would speak in our own hearts to help us to see the possibilities so that we could create the future that you want us to create. We pray all these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.